This week on Flyover from NPR News, we're taking stock of a turbulent fall. I'm Carrie Miller. Over the last 12 weeks, we've heard from Americans across flyover country who are worried, confused, downright angry. There's more issues like racism, sexism, homophobia that I have had to struggle with since I've been here for the last 13 years. But for the first time, I'm feeling an urge to want to go back home. We've also heard stories of resilience and hope. Ahead on the program, I've invited an anthropologist to listen to what you told us about American identity. And I've asked him to help make some connections across the conversations we've had, from guns to race to religion, jobs and health care. Flyover starts after this news. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News, a show about America in turbulent times. I'm Carrie Miller, and I've been welcoming you that way for the last 12 weeks, and the times are no less turbulent here at Thanksgiving than they were at Labor Day. We've experienced devastating hurricanes, mass shootings, a terror attack in New York, acrimony over black athletes taking a knee during the national anthem, and protests over the president's decision to end legal protections for so-called dreamers. President Trump has feuded with Democrats and Republicans and a nuclear-armed North Korea. Halls of power from Hollywood to Washington are reeling from revelations of sexual harassment and assault. And don't think flyover country is exempt. Two state lawmakers right here in Minnesota are stepping down because of harassment claims. Turbulent times indeed. And through it all, we've listened directly to you. You, our listeners in the towns and cities outside the media spotlight, you've told us deeply personal stories about what's changing where you live and about how your identity as an American is holding up in this time of upheaval. On this last show of season one, we're going to listen back to some of your calls and draw connections between some of these big identity issues that we've been talking about. My guest for this hour is Jose Santos, an anthropologist and professor of social science at Metropolitan State University here in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're not taking your calls this week. Instead, we're going to listen back to a handful from earlier shows and let Jose's trained ear make some important connections. So let's get started. I've loved it when you've called to tell us about a moment of change in your life. In our show about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, Hannah from the Wisconsin Dells called to talk about a simple classroom experiment that changed her view of privilege in America. They had a classroom and they had a, a trash bin at the front of the classroom. And they said, everyone take your piece of paper, crumple it and throw it into the trash can. Mm -hmm. And the people up front had no problem doing it, and some people from the back got it, but they had a little bit harder time (laughs) doing it. Interesting. And the point was (laughs) that um, if it's it's possible for the people in the back to get it in the trash can, it's possible if they have good aim, if they try really hard. I mean, it's not impossible, but there's a certain amount of privilege that comes to sitting in the front. Jose Santos, you're a classroom teacher. I know you admire a classroom experiment like that. What did you hear in Hannah's story? Uh, I hear a magnificent attempt at trying to explain something that we call uh, structural problems, right? Structural discrimination, institutional bias, all those buzzwords, right, that, that people have gotten sick of hearing. Um, she used the word privilege, like white, white privilege gets used, male privilege gets used. Um, but the basic idea is things aren't equal. Uh, we aren't all shooting from the same spot. And that is a really hard thing for us to believe. Uh, I think we, we want to believe in the fairness of our country. We want to believe that America is this this noble place. Um, and if you have to concede that it isn't the same for everybody, not everybody gets to be able to reach the trash can, for lack of a, a better way of putting it, um, then we, we want to be able to tell ourselves that's not true. We want to be able to tell ourselves, no, 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 it is fair. It is fair. Well, if people just did like I did – or people just did like my parents did, um, then they too would be able to hit the trash can. And I think what that experiment does um, is it shows you it, it, it isn't that way. That's just not the way life works. Um, and we're born in different places. We're born to different circumstances. Some of us are born poor. Some of us are born richer. Uh, some of us are born of a particular race or a particular gender. And those things can make a difference 
for the goals that you want to achieve. And that's a hard thing for America to accept. I mean, what we're really talking about here is the essence of the myth of America. And I know why we don't. That That's the story we tell about ourselves collectively, but it's also the story we tell about ourselves individually. And I know why we don't want to let that go. Yeah, yeah, because it well, I mean, it's back to that issue of identity. This right. is this is who I am. I made myself. It, nobody did it for me. And you want to really believe that about yourself. Um, I think one of the problems that that myth has, this whole thing, like everything, anybody can make it in America. One thing that that myth does is it enables oppression. It enables us to be able to say, well, if people aren't making it, that's on them. That's their fault. Um, and then we're back to another thing that Americans are really good at, which is the blame game, right? We, we thrive on the blame game. Um, and, and those are things I think that's part of what we're reevaluating right now in our history. One of the other, uh, I think, indications of the uncertainty and the questioning that we're doing about who we are as Americans and what this culture means is what's what's happening around guns. And we did a show about guns and American identity in the days just after the mass shooting in Las Vegas. And, Jose, we got this call from Alexis, who is listening in Chicago. I've mostly been against gun ownership most of my life. Um, my husband had a gun, but when he insisted he really wanted one, I wasn't going to stop him. So I you know, went through the training and just like your last caller said, you know, felt we have to be responsible because it is a weapon. Uh, but now... You know, for years, I was always anti-gun, really didn't want anything to do with them. I understand why rural folks need them. But in the city, in a city like Chicago, it's just dangerous. I'm literally in the car right now going through uh, one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the city. And it's getting worse and worse here because of our underfunding, because of our pension problems. There's The cops don't come anymore. I mean, people have tons of stories of getting robbed, getting injured, getting, you know, different things. And they're not coming. There's just not enough police here right now. And so it's getting to the point where I'm like, you know what? We may need to protect ourselves. And that scares me because I'm as liberal as they come. And if I'm thinking about gun ownership, I can't imagine what, you know, folks in, in more rural areas in that are thinking. I get it. I, I don't. I still don't really agree with everybody having access to crazy, you know, semi-automatics and stuff. But a handgun, I get it. This is where personal experience meets political orthodoxy, and you can hear her working through this even as she's talking about it to us. Yeah, it, like like mentally trying to – how do I find the right way to respond to this? What's the right thing to do? <laughs> right. I, you know, with the guns issue I, – so I grew up in Texas, um, but I, I've lived in some pretty liberal places, right? So like I went to a really liberal university. I live here in St. Paul now. And so having to see, I think, the, the extremes – of the whole gun debate, I think, is has been a gift. It's also been something that's kind of scary, right? And and you get a little nauseated um, sometimes because you see just how hard line people can can be about this. But I, I think what, what Alexis said that was so principal is that so much of this revolves around fear, right? Um, we need to protect ourselves. And that, to me, is, is the part that's scary. You know, do people want to own guns? Are people going to own guns? Yes, I, I actually think it's the whole notion of getting rid of all guns in the United States. I, I don't see how that would be possible in the foreseeable future. It's just a way that people live. But so there's that issue. People have always had guns. and But then there's the issue of fear and murder. And I was just looking at a report that CBS News had made, and they were um, listing the top, I think, 60 or so. Uh, ur urban areas and their and their murder rates and they range from like 0.5 or something all the way to 29 per 100,000. That's a lot of dead people. That is so many dead people. People that are getting shot. People that are getting killed. And so I, I don't know if we've reached the point of subtlety of being able to to separate in the United States between I want to own a gun and then that we have this other issue of people are shooting each other in ridiculous numbers, in ridiculous numbers and Maybe people don't want to give on the I want a gun thing, right? And maybe they shouldn't have to, right? It, it is a right. But we've got to do something about people killing one another. And so far, our attempts at, at dealing with that haven't been good. And so individuals are left with this feeling that Alexis had, which is, well, I still need to protect myself. I don't feel safe. And that feeling of not being safe is a horrible way to live. Uh, I think that's that's part of what our country is going through, whether it's, you know, you're surrounded by urban violence or you're seeing it on TV, you feel like it's everywhere. You feel unsafe. You know, what I also think is when we look at this overall sense of change, our reaction to this, and I think this is a thread that went entirely through the whole season of Flyover, there's a lot of fear expressed. 
Absolutely. Right? Who are we going to be if, you know, if immigration numbers don't change, if we don't do something about gun policy or or we restrict guns in some way? I mean, you can plug that into a lot of the discussions that we had. I, I absolutely believe that so much of what the country is going through is fear. And, and part of it is when you lose the things that once seemed so stable and so completely true, like this whole myth of bootstraps America, that anybody can make it in America – and if that's your, your fundamental premise to how you live, losing that or being presented with evidence against that, your first reaction is is defensive. And your first reaction is, no, 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 that can't be true. And I think what we have now is this polarization of people competing with versions of truth, competing with versions of what are the facts um, and who am I and who are we. And um, when you're scared like that, when you live, when a human, human beings just <laughs> – we don't create the best societies when we're terrified. And I think what I hope what we're seeing is we're working out our fear. We really are figuring out new ways to do the same stuff over again. And I think um, a really good example is is all this stuff coming out about sexual harassment, Mm -hmm. right? It's all these things that were always there. And all of a sudden we're reevaluating. Maybe it's not okay. Maybe that means we have to change everything about how we interact, how we interact in the workplace, how men and women interact with each other, um, how we talk about dating and sex and things like that. And that's a scary thing because that's stuff that people have been doing their whole lives. And it's like, well, I don't want to think that I've been doing wrong my whole life and I don't want to have to change. So, yeah, that's scary. The other thing I wonder is how moments of change and the fear that that provokes meets the diminishment of our trust in institutions. Because, right, don't we fear because we don't know that we can trust the institution religious, governmental, educational to solve it. Yeah. And, and that um, it, it leads us to create new enemies and to see the people that might have been, you know, an opposition party before as as a monster, as a potential threat to our existence. Right. The way that Republicans and Democrats see each other, not just as political opponents, but really as the thing that's destroying the country. Um, and that is so scary. You know, I just I just had my students uh, read an article about affective polarization, right? The, the polarization between Republican and Democrat, and they did a few experiments. And um, they found in some of these experiments, it was even more contentious than race. Um, and it's fascinating that now it's gotten to the point where the participation that our institutions rely on, which is political parties, those are the ones that we're cutting ourselves to pieces over. And I'm not sure there's an easy resolution to that other than some long-term evolution that I hope, you know, my hope is that in all this, this is what America is asking for. I don't know that we're articulating it all that well. What we're articulating is still, we're still at the finger-pointing, blaming, shaming each other's stage. Jose Santos is an anthropologist and associate professor of social science at Metropolitan State University here in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's helping us see some of the through lines in this first season of Flyover from NPR News. Coming up, we'll hear calls about immigration and race and religion that speak to this sense of anxiety, if not outright fear, here in Flyover Country. Stay with us. This is the last episode of Flyover for this season. We plan to be back on public radio stations next fall. In the meantime, find me on Twitter at Carrie NPR and listen back to the shows you missed from this season at flyoverradio.org. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. This is Flyover from NPR News, and I'm Carrie Miller. Today, I'm talking with anthropologist Jose Santos. He's listened to our program since we started in September, and he's helping us see some of the common threads that came up as we talked about big topics in American identity, race and health care, hard work, and much more. Your calls made the program as powerful as it's been. You were candid with us about your feelings and what life is like in your corner of the country. On the topic of immigration, for instance, we heard loud and clear how many Americans embrace being a nation of immigrants, but feel so strongly that new immigrants just aren't working hard enough to live up to that proud history. In a moment, we'll hear what that feels like to one African immigrant. But first, here's Jose Santos. 
you know, as, as an anthropologist, I think immigration is, is the perfect example of, of what one of the things that culture trains us to do. And it trains us to recognize who's in and who's out, who is an insider and who's an outsider. An outsider, by definition, is this nebulous, scary category, right? Who are they? What do they want? What are they really coming here? What are their motivations? And a lot of what we have to, to create that impression is just, you know, stories we tell about them, narratives that we have about them. Uh, you know, they're coming to take our jobs. They're bringing in drugs. They're bringing in, you know, they're rapists, they're murderers and so on. Um, and part of why we need those narratives to deal with immigrants is because they are the other. We don't always know who they are. We haven't met them yet, right? So for a lot of us that have been around immigrants our entire lives, right? And so I, I have the privilege my parents were immigrants. And so we knew a lot of immigrants. And in Texas, when I was growing up, there was more and more immigrants coming in. You just sort of become accustomed to it. You start realizing this is not a threat to my life. Um, but if you don't have that kind of contact, if you don't have that kind of exposure, or it's a limited exposure, all you have to go off of is, are these narratives of here's this scary other. They're speaking a language I don't understand. They must be talking about me, right? Mm -hmm. What are they saying? Um, and, and I think that, again, capitalizes on fear. If, if we don't find a way to, to deal with that, I think you do – I mean that's where you get these nationalist populist movements. Like we, we want to be just us and if it's just us, then we'll be safe. But notice that, well, we're still tearing each other apart you know, as from us. From the inside. Yeah, from the inside oh, anyway right. over you know, whether it's, it's gun control or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, there's something about the threat of the outsider. Here's We got a call in our conversation about immigration from Comfort in Minneapolis. Let's listen. Um, I wanted to just uh, contribute, you know, as a young first-generation African immigrant from Zimbabwe, I personally mm -hmm. do not feel that my contributions or uh, even I as a, as a young woman in academia am valued. Um, I don't feel welcome. As one of the speakers said, that this is bigger. There are bigger issues than just immigration. There's more endemic, uh, endemic um, systemic issues like racism, sexism, homophobia, just a lot of isms that I've had to struggle with since I've been here for the last 13 years. But I think President Trump has really brought those things more, to more light where I'm actually feeling them. I actually have physiological reactions to things like criminal justice system issues now. And I've reached for the first time I'm raising my children who are, who are biracial and are American citizens here. But for the first time, I'm feeling an urge to want to go back home. I'm really, really? feeling homesick. What do you hear? Wow. I heard a lot of anxiety and I, and I heard some, some really great ability to articulate what that anxiety is about, right? Um, that sense, I don't feel welcome. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I was just, uh, just on Saturday. I was at a traditional lutefisk dinner. And for those of you that don't know, in, in Minnesota, Minnesota's <laughs> wow. got a big um, Scandinavian heritage, yeah. right? That's where the immigrants that, uh, that founded the, the Twin Cities, for example, came from. And so they have this kind of fish that, that, you know, some people like it, some people don't. It's kind of, I thought, kind of bland. It's but horrible. It's, it's horrible. It's like Many people bland say, fish dipped in, I don't know what. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> it, that, it's, that it's, okay, I'll admit it, it's, it's got a gross consistency. <laughs> so uh, here I go, and it's at this, um, this, you know, this big, beautiful Lutheran church, right? Very traditional kind of place. And so I, I walk in with my friend. And, you know, we get some coffee, and they've got some, um, you know, some pastries out there for us. Um, and within seconds, you know, uh, an older gentleman, you know, comes up and introduces himself. He's being really nice and everything and immediately begins the conversation with me about like, where are you from? Right. And I'm like, oh, I'm from Texas. Where are you from? <laughs> from? Uh -huh. Right. Um, and then, you know, asking, you know, where are my parents from or this, that and the other. And, and of course, you know, inserting in there the questions um, that, you know, I guess will alleviate his anxiety. I don't know. You know, it's like, so yeah, but they're but they're both American citizens now, right? They've been here a long time, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. So they just happen to be. So I'll of course, say yes. And he's like, and and you, where where were you? Are you? You know, he didn't want to flat out say, are you a citizen or not? Yeah. Because that would be rude, right? And you want to be polite. Um, but then he was he was sort of getting at, well, where were you born? Born kind of thing. And I was like, well, no, I was, I was born in Dallas. And I was like, oh, OK. So it's, it's like you, I had to go through this, um, this clearance process, <laughs> right, to see if I'm one of the good ones. With each of you, by the way, knowing exactly what's going on here. Yeah. He yeah. knew that. You knew that. It's, it's perfectly transparent. Right. right? It's, it's perfectly transparent. Um, you know, and this vetting process, for lack of a better word, it isn't something that happens – um, just as people entering the country. Once you're in here, people have a vetting process for whether it's you're okay to be there or not. 
And I was born here. I grew up here. I've I've had a great deal of success, right, in my home country. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't go away. People's prejudice around this doesn't just disappear. And so this feeling of I don't feel welcome. I was born here. I, I grew up here. English is my native language, right? I've I, I got my degrees here. Um, I still don't feel welcome, right? Depending on where I walk into, um, this is something that has happened to me actually since I moved to the Midwest. Um, more than a handful of times, right? Whether it's it's in a bar, in a coffee shop, something like that. And so when she's talking about these physical reactions, like I, I know what she's talking about. Like for me, there's this like tightening of, of the stomach. Like I'm like, oh, here it goes. Here it comes. Uh, I've got to listen to this. Um, for those of us that, you know, are second generation, third generation, you know, she talks about, I feel I want to go home. Um, there is this tremendous sadness to our lives, because I want to go home, but this is my home. And where else am I supposed to go? Um, and so, and that's 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 why you see us. You know, we tend to be very, <laughs> we we tend to be the people that try to fight the ism, right? The the sexism, the racism, mm-hmm. the, the the prejudice, because we know what that feels like. We know what that's like to grow up around that. Um, you know, she mentioned how Trump brings this more to life. Um, I I remember being fascinated that so many. People were surprised by stuff that Trump said about immigrants. Um, I was like, well, you know, this is stuff I've been saying all along. That people do feel this way. People genuinely feel this way. And then you start hearing people say, he says what I'm thinking. Of course. Yeah. Um, we, this is just a dialogue we needed to have a long time ago. It's a dialogue we need to start having really early on, like with our kids. If this is a nation that has so many immigrants, people need to know how to deal with that. And I think... Since, you know, they didn't have that conversation with their kids, they're having it as adults and they're sort of like, well, maybe I don't want any immigrants here. Mm -hmm. The problem is logistical. It's way too late for that. It is way too late for that. If if that was our policy from the beginning, then we wouldn't even have lutefisk in Minnesota, right? Uh, Because those immigrants would have been kept (laughs) out. Good point. Um, And, you know, the estimates for um, undocumented, right, what people call illegal immigration, is anywhere from a few million to 20 million. That is so many people, right? That's more than the populations of, you know, the Twin Cities. With some right? very deep roots in communities that yeah. I think are obscured in some ways. Yeah. So um, having to rethink how do, how do we deal with something that's already so massive. We're not talking about a few people here. We're talking about a huge sector of the American population. Uh, how do we deal with that? Uh, Jose, I want, I want you to hear Jesus, who I think speaks to a lot of what we heard from Comfort, but really nails what you're saying about if I'm not if, – if this isn't home, where is home? And hey, by the way, I've done everything I was supposed to do to, to fit in here. This is from a show about where is the real America – and Jesus, for me, set the whole tenor for the whole season of Flyover. So listen to what he says. Well, what I'm thinking about is, is the dissonance it puts me in. It puts me in a spot where, as being a, a American, first of all, or Mexican-American, it puts me in a place where I feel excluded. And it, but it, what puts me in dissonance is that I'm living the American experience, right? But the, paying my taxes, taking care of work, doing it every day. But at the same time, I'm being excluded from certain places, from certain discussions, from certain narratives, from certain possibilities. So it always constantly plays me in this one spot where I'm never quite good enough to succeed or become that that, I, that I'm being promised. But at the same time, I'm here to actually kind of support that possibility so I can be used or not used whenever the ideology seems to be at the forefront. So, Jesus, when, when you hear a politician talk, use that phrase and talk about this ideal of real America, I mean, you're quickly aware that you probably wouldn't turn up on the poster for, hey, this is the real America. Yeah. And right, like, even right now, as you said that, I get chills in my, in my and I want to cry because it hurts. It hurts to think that those are I'm really good and have a voice and have a place to say it. Like, let's live the American dream. Exclude me. Talk about the inside and the outside. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. He's on the inside, but feels like he's on the outside. Right. That that feeling of exclusion, right? That dissonance that he's talking about. I mean, the phrase that, that really hit me, it's, it's uh, I'm never good enough to become that which I am promised. Right. And and that promise, I think, is is back to those images we have of the U.S., right? The promise of the U.S., the, the, the bootstraps America, right? The uh, The American dream and all that. 
and then realizing we, we don't all have equal access to it, right? We, we are, you know, people are at different starting positions towards the finish line. Um, and I, I think part of what's painful is, is that I know I've heard in situations where somebody like Jesus has talked, you know, there's a lot of people shaking their heads, you know, when he says something like, you know, I feel excluded. Um, a lot of people would simply react, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're just, you're just not. Right. And I think for those of us that are excluded, it, it again, part of what hurts is that it puts the burden back on us to have to explain it. The, the lack of acknowledgement. Yeah. The lack of acknowledgement, the lack of believability, the the, the burden of providing proof. Right. But, the, but that also comes back to identity and ideal and who we are. No, you're not. I can see why. People want to argue with that, yeah, right? Yeah, oh, that's not who we are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or you know, or that people will feel guilt. Um, you know, I know, like in Texas, when stuff like that would would happen to me growing up, you know, you, you get you do get made fun of a lot for for being different, right? For for being like it was clear, like so. I I had the big thing. I was I was um, you know, my mother's Guatemala, my father's Honduran, so everybody would make the joke, "You Mexican." Right. Uh, because that's that's what people know. Right. Me- Mexican is the most populous right, immigrant group. And it's like Guatemala and Honduras. He's brown and speaks it's Spanish. It's all the right? same. Um, and so that that was a way of kind of ribbing me. And I think in, in their own way, you know, like uh, here's 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 the joke around this guy. That means he's welcome. Right. And being completely blind to what that's like. Right. To being completely blind to what are you, what are you actually saying? Um, and I know when I would see something that that resembled racism, people were very quick to ah, oh, they're just you know they're just giving you junk, they're, you know they're just messing with you, they're just like um, this, that, or the other. People are so quick to explain it away, or people are so quick. This is the thing that gets really annoying. People are so quick to say, "But I'm not like that," right? Like some, how does that make it better for me <laughs> that <laughs> that you're not like that? Because this thing that I'm complaining about yeah. already happened, and you being like that doesn't change the fact that it happened. Well, you, but what that's all about, right? Is I don't want to take on the shame, and yeah, you yeah. can't blame me. Yeah, exactly. Right, for that. Yeah, and and in a big shame culture like ours, you know, people are very quick to want to kind of shove off the shame, and that makes sense. I think one of the other places, um, Jose, that we were hearing, you know, moments of despair is when we turn the mirror back on ourselves and say, I'm not sure I like what I see in the mirror, which is why I knew this conversation, this flyover conversation about white resentment was going to be one of the touchiest that we were going to have. Right out of the right out of the shoot here, we heard from Whitney in Freedom, Wisconsin, and she she set the tone for the rest of that show. Let's listen. I'm a black female engineer. Mm-hmm. I'm in a majority um, white male environment, and I grew up in a majority white community. And it kind of seems like the finger is pointed at the white man for everything that's taking place right now. And I try to tell, you know, my white friends or whatever, like, I see where you're coming from, and I know that you're good, and I know that you're not all bad. But I notice the opposite is true of them. They're not able to put themselves in my shoes. Like, I constantly have to explain that Black Lives Matter is not a supremacy group. They're fighting for equality. They don't think that their lives matter more. They just want their lives to matter, period. You know what I hear in that, first of all, is yet again, an an American of color doing the explaining and setting the stage for trying to make this a comfortable conversation, which it never is these days about race. What do you hear? Oh, absolutely not. And not only that, again, having to go through the extra effort, right? They they don't understand my situation, but I can understand theirs, but I'm not getting that that reciprocity, right? Um, I I think this this whole notion of, you know, um, pointing the finger at the white male, that is something the United States really has to learn to deal with. Um, and and it's not dealing with it really well. Um, and I, I think a, a lot of it is if you know I I study masculinity. That's one of the things I do as an anthropologist. And and one of the things that we find uh, is that in a lot of cultures, and ours is particularly no exception to this, males are not taught to communicate very well at all. Um, they're not taught to have these kind of conversations. That if somebody says, um, you know, I think your group, the way that it has existed and what it has been doing is problematic, right? They're taught to defend. They're taught to protect and they're, they're taught to like, oh, God, here's one of these people blaming me. Well, let me blame you. Right. Um, and so what she, what she's describing there is happening all over the country. Right. And you have a lot of a lot of men, a lot of white men who feel so persecuted, who feel so 
they feel like they're being oppressed, right? Um, and that feels very, very real, right? We have to acknowledge that that, that feels real when people are telling you, right, you, you, you and your ancestors are the cause of the nation's problems, right? Like that's, that's something we have to acknowledge. That's a, that's a hard thing to hear. Okay, so even if it's a – what you're saying is even if it's a misinterpretation of – and maybe we're not having the conversation in the most graceful way that we can, yep. right? But it isn't, isn't it a misinterpretation of what's actually going on? Or what, what would yeah. you say? I, well, I, I think the, the problem with misinterpretation is even if they are misinterpreting, you're still stuck with what they feel I got with. Got it. Right? That, that's, that's the starting point. Um, and I think you know, drawing this conversation out into why are people saying – why are people blaming white men? Why are people doing that rather than they, they shouldn't be blaming white men? And I, a lot of that I think can come from how we teach history. Right. If if we look at the way colonization has, has worked, if we look at the way European colonization has worked just in this country. Right. And having to rewrite that narrative of was 1492 a good year or a bad year? Right. When Columbus got here, was that a good thing or a bad thing? Mm -hmm. And arguing over that um, is a really hard thing to do. And when when you look at a lot of the evidence, you know, and, and you weigh it, you're like, maybe this wasn't so great. Right. And then immediately people are like, well, no, 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 that's ridiculous. How can you come after all these great accomplishments that we've had, all these wonderful things that we've done? And it's like, well, no, I, I don't need to negate all those wonderful things to be able to say some bad came of this. There are bad things that result from this. That's not a conversation we seem capable of having. We, we tend to want to be pretty black and white about race things. Right. That's a, that's a, a sort of ironic way of putting it. Um, you know, when I when I when I when I talk to, to men about this whole communication thing, and I think this this could apply to white men in this situation. When somebody's coming after you, it's like um, you know, this happens to men a lot. Is particularly now with this whole mm -hmm. um, issue of sexual harassment right. coming up, they'll start hearing things that they feel are accusatory to their group, and um, and so they'll start getting the defensive right, like so the thing that we call oh, I see it in the calls yeah, when I talk about sexual harassment. Right. I, I think a really a way of turning that around and and turning it into something potentially positive for everybody involved is you know instead of doing the defensive thing, be like, help me understand, help me understand. I I genuinely do not understand where you're coming from. That's Jose Santos, an anthropologist at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul. He's offering insight this hour into the stories we've heard throughout this first season of Flyover from NPR News. We'll be back in just a minute with more. I want to say thank you to everyone who's listened to Flyover this season. I plan to be back with more of these conversations about American identity in the midst of the high-stakes midterm election year next fall. In the meantime, let me know what you thought of the show. Find me on Twitter at CarrieMPR or email us at info at flyoverradio.org. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover from NPR News, a show about America in turbulent times. It's our last week for this season, and we're talking with anthropologist Jose Santos about some of the important conversations we've had this fall about American identity in the midst of political upheaval. Yes, we heard a lot about fear and uncertainty, but there were also moments of clarity and hope in these conversations. Listen to this from our show about the real cost of creating American jobs and whether it's worth it for governments to pay to attract jobs to their region. You know this debate resonates here in middle America. Our guest Matthew Mitchell from George Mason University found a moment of real connection with our other guest, Sandy Darity from Duke. Uh, I think we're missing an opportunity for left and right to come to some agreement here. How so? So Sandy and I may have uh, probably some different ideas, uh, you know, ideological views. I'm a generally free market, uh, you know, economist uh, who would prefer to see a much smaller government. You're a libertarian. Um, can we say that? Maybe? Yeah, I, would, okay. I think that's yeah. a fair fair way to characterize it. Um, and Sandy, I, I, I gather, might be a progressive. We're sort of agreeing here right. that, you know, we can debate about what's the proper size of government. But there's a long tradition and I think an absolutely right tradition in this country – that says government ought not to discriminate. And that's really what we're talking about is whatever the size of the government is, it should be treating people equitably. And we shouldn't have special one set of rules for uh, flashy companies or well-connected companies or 
um, politically active donating companies and another set of rules for the pedestrian companies that aren't as flashy, aren't as politically active um, and just aren't winning the the favors. You know, I think he articulated the the moment of I'm pulling from my what I know you believe and I'm articulating what I believe. And this is normally a very polarized conversation. And I think he articulated in a way that I wish more politicians would. I I am dumbfounded as to how politicians lost their ability to compromise. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, the tax plan, the health plan, those are really good examples. You, you do have voices saying, I want this over here and I want this over there. And why is it why is it politicians don't seem to think it's their job to be able to put those two things together? Because many voters are somewhere in the middle, but maybe not the voters that sent the yeah that sent them, them to Congress to do this, right? I, I really don't know. It's, it's it's you know part of it is probably tied to the political polarization, and they think they think they're winning votes um, by by doing that by taking this hardline stance. But what we find is the end result hasn't well, – maybe they've won votes, but our confidence in Congress is pretty low. It's really, really low, right? You know, And so he, he, he puts you – know, OK, so I think government should be big. You think government should be small or rather the other way around. He thinks government should be small. Other people think government should be big. OK, well, we have to put that aside for the moment. Can we agree on equity? Can we agree on um, it should be fair and what does fairness look like? So for me, for example, you know, I I see this tax plan that's being put forth in the House and the Senate, and there's these huge tax breaks for corporations. And I'm being told that the reason that that's happening is because if we do that, that'll make it better for everybody else, right? That'll create jobs and that'll maybe it'll increase wages or something like that. And I don't see why it's so hard to put something in that legislation that, okay, if that's if that's what you're going to sell me and you have the votes for it. Why can't you put something in there that stipulates that? Why can't you put something in there? Okay, these companies will get these amazing tax breaks if they do X. And if they were going to do that anyway, there's no burden on them whatsoever, right? If what you're telling me is true and, oh, no, they're going to take these, you know, these, these tax breaks and they're going to create more jobs. If they're going to do that anyway, what is the harm in reassuring the rest of us <laughs> by putting it in the legislation, <laughs> right? And that, that art of compromise is just not there at all. I think it's what you said earlier about our conversations around race being black and white. And I'm thinking about a caller that I had on a show about sexual harassment who said, we don't know how to hold the gray. Yeah. Our politics doesn't show us how to do that. I think we're out of practice of doing that. And I think this speaks exactly to what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you go back to what we're taught in, in elementary school and so on, right? Like just to go back to this whole issue of, um, uh, things being black and white is, you know, do we look at American history as problematic? Do we look at it as a moral success story? You know, why, uh, children can understand some people believe this and some other people believe this. And they're going to ask, well, which one's true? And you can say, you know, um, that's a thing that we're figuring out as we go along. Rather than you indoctrinate children really early on with one version of the truth. And then as they're growing up, and they're exposed to other versions of, of what might be true, they have to reject it. It has to turn into a fight. So it's like trickle-down economic works. It just does. And anybody who says it doesn't is just wrong. Well, not everybody believes that. That is not everybody's reality. And you need to be able to have the dialogue with the people that don't believe that. Not because you're nice, but because they're half <laughs> the country, and you can't run the place unless... Half the country and the other half of the country know how to get along. This is something that came up in our show about um, what's happening with communities of faith and the misunderstandings and the that happen between faith communities and our um, need somehow to disavow a faith that we don't understand. That's black. My faith is white. We've got the real truth here and you don't. And our guest, Janan Mohajir, uh, talked to us about what it's like to be a woman Muslim who is helping to educate young Muslim girls about reproductive health. So you can already see she's breaking out yeah. of the structure, the little box that we want to put around her. 
And here's what she said. Uh, a few years ago, I was at a speaking engagement uh, on on a campus in the South. I'm not going to identify it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was uh, with this graduate student who was kind of, you know, assigned to sort of walk me around and make sure I got to places on time. And at the end of the night, I, I took a seat with him and we were just sort of saying our goodbyes. And he confessed to me that he um, was thinking about leaving um, Christianity, although he was in seminary studying to be a minister because he had come out to his family as um, an LGBTQ person and they basically weren't welcoming of that um, on their table. And so if you can imagine a covered hijab wearing Muslim woman sitting in the hotel lobby with this young man in in a southern state convincing him that actually there was space for him in the church as an LGBTQ person and um, to connect him with some of those people that I knew in the area. And that really, to me, is one of the ways that we can be there for each other and help each other make those decisions, whatever the end result may be, but to kind of be resources to one another even across lines of faith to think about, you know, how we sort of come to the place that defines us the most and how we come to that comfortable place where we can live out our values in the way that we want to. One of the one of the issues with faith is that it's so much more complex than we think about it. Um, you know, I, I, I teach a class on the anthropology of religion, and, and my background is actually wow. studying both religion and masculinity, which is <laughs> can be kind of a mess. Um, Americans don't agree on what religion is. We have pretty black and white ideas of, of what religion is. And when most people think religion, when you ask them to define it, they'll come up with something that resembles um, either Christianity, Judaism, Islam, right? They think of the big ones and they think of big institutions and they think of churches and, and I, I mean actual structures and locations and they think of hierarchy. Um, and they think of discrimination often. Um, and I think in some ways, yeah, that is religion. That's part of religion. Um, but there's this other part of religion that kind of explains why there's so many people that are saying more and more, I am not religious, right? So as an anthropologist, I look at what they're doing and how they live and they say, I am not religious, but I'm looking at it and, and I'm an anthropologist. So I, I define religion a little differently. I define it more from a, a human, a cross-cultural perspective. And I say, no, what you're doing is pretty pretty religious. They'll say something like, I'm I'm spiritual, but not religious. Right. Um, and I think why so many people are 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 sometimes leaving churches in droves. Um, you know, there's this sadness to it. Um, but it's because while religion does do this kind of labeling people thing, it really does do that, right? It does It does outline sometimes what's right from wrong. Um, but at its core is something much more fundamental. And when people don't get that, they will go looking for it someplace else. I think that's why we have religion. And, and what it is is the problem of suffering, right? Why are things painful? Why are there bad things out there? Right. Um, the, the great anthropologist Clifford Geertz, you know, when he wrote about religion, he has this really long definition of religion. He, he spends a whole essay defining it. Right. And maybe that's not something everybody wants to read, um, but it's good to get at the nuance. And he says, um, if a religion cannot deal with the problem of suffering, it's not going to survive. So let's not think about, you know, Christianity is not going to survive. Islam is not going to survive. I don't, I don't think that's the issue. But I'm saying if the church in your community is not addressing your suffering and the suffering of others – it doesn't really stand a chance in the long term. If it is not extending that compassion, if it's not helping people deal with pain and suffering, it's it's not going to do that. And I think what's happening, particularly I see this with a lot of young people, is they do have that kind of inborn longing for this thing that religion does. Um, and they're greatly disillusioned that they're not always finding it, right? Um, and so I, I think religion is also something that we don't like to think of it this way. Religion does evolve. The Christianity of today is not the Christianity of 300 years ago, is not the Christianity of 1000 AD. Um, that has changed radically over time. And so we're seeing this shift. I, I feel positive about it. Um, but do people feel torn in the meantime? Absolutely. And the thing that's happening simultaneously is that a lot of the religions are, are doing that other thing that religion does. They're, they're not maybe d- addressing the suffering issue. I think plenty are, right? I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. But some that are not are still doing the us and them thing, are still doing the condemning. Here's who you're supposed to not like, right? Um, and that's a, that's a big turnoff for a lot of people. Um, this speaks to something that our guest for our show about faith communities, Brian McLaren, talked about in his new book, which is about the evolution of being a believer and what it means to be a believer today. Younger folks aren't leaving the church because they want to be bad and the church is asking them to be good. They want to do good in the world. They're, they're looking for avenues of making a difference, of service, of social justice, and so on. 
and they go to church and feel like the church is in another business. Uh, you know, the church is in the put on an hour activity or keep the budget paid or, uh, you know, focus on a set of personal, private uh, peccadilloes and and avoid the big social issues of the day. And sadly, if you ask a, a, a why this is happening, I think the the truth is that our religions are as polarized and paralyzed as our country. And uh, a lot of ministers are afraid to address issues because if they talk about poverty and social justice and LGBT equality in the environment, their 24-7 Fox News listeners will be offended. Hmm. And and so and if they uh, so so they they walk on eggshells. And I think young people are smart enough to say, I've only got so many hours in my day. Uh, I want to put that time to good use and not just walk on eggshells. Jose, we've covered a lot of, I think, the stickiest uh, issues and, and discussions about American identity. But I know there's a lot more to be covered and. We hope to do that in season two. Mm-hmm. What should we get at? Uh, so I'm I'm biased on this, right? Uh, you know, I'm I'm a professor and and I teach college, um, and what I see in so many of these issues, right? This polarization, right? This this fear, all of this, is people that never learned how to deal with this stuff, right? We we didn't grow up knowing how. To, so if if we look at just how Facebook works, and you can log on. And you are assaulted by all these things that you're supposed to think and supposed to believe, right? Your, your friends are posting memes about this thing or that thing, and sometimes they're contradicting each other. And that it's, that's a really confusing thing and, and that you see it and you realize, well, some of it seems to be coming at me or it's coming at people I know. And so I need to post a meme to respond to that. And, and it's all about these one-liners and everything. We weren't taught how to deal with that many messages all at once, right? We weren't taught how, to, how do we deal with somebody that – disagrees with us fundamentally about something? How do we deal with a divided country? How do we even facilitate dialogue around it? And I think that starts really early. So I think something to explore is, you know, what did we learn? What did we learn? What are the things that we learned early up growing on that we were taught, whether it's in school, by our parents, our families, on the playground, that have made this place so divisive? Right? Where did we learn, where did we learn not to be able to figure out a tax plan? Where did we learn not to be able to figure out health care, like just a fundamental thing, a thing that you literally die if you don't get it, right? How did we manage to learn not to do that, right? Um, because the whole thing about finding compromise and so on, how did we learn not to compromise? Um, where does all that come from? And, and I think if we go back to that basic, we can think in terms of the future. What do we want the next generation to look like? Right. Right? What is it that we can give them? What, is, what are the skills that they can learn from age five forward right, that will make this a better place? Because um, it's, it's scary when you think about it, right? that some of the things that we didn't learn early on, they, that, that vacancy stays with us. Right? So you know, I teach college, and I have um, graduating seniors who still can't get around this stuff. Right. Or still don't have certain skills around just, you know, how do I have a conversation? How do I express how I feel in writing in a way that makes sense to people? And I hate to say it, but those basic skills make a difference. It it is part of whether we can get along with other people or not. Do I know how to talk to people? I mean, in some ways, you're talking about critical argument. And whether we and I know that sounds a little academic. Yeah, but that is what it is, isn't it? Uh, I think can in I some hold ways, a view and express it? No? Yeah, can, part of it is that right. The critical argument, I think, is part of like, you know, how do we weigh evidence and so on? I think there's something even more basic of how do I communicate with another person without trying to be the winner? Right. How do I communicate with another person? Right. So, I mean, go, going back to, you know, social media feeds. Notice uh, the dialogues that you see on there are all these things, somebody trying to come out on top. Somebody wants to say that last line that shuts the other person up. I won because I posted the wittier comment or I I managed to post that one link, whatever, right, that shows them Um, versus, okay, well, here's the evidence I have. Here's the evidence you have. Why are we disagreeing Mm. on this? Where do we – is there room for compromise or not? Do we need to just end the conversation or what? It isn't. Why, why do we go to I got to beat the other guy? And, and I think part of it is part of what we're raised, I think, is with this fundamental belief that you can fix things by crushing opposition, that you can fix things uh, by beating up the bad guy, 
right? Or killing the bad guy or, or however it is it works out in a particular situation. That, that, uh, that badness, evil is something that you can annihilate, right? And I don't think it works that way. Right when when we have Congress people trying to get each other to shut up or to just shut the other one out of the conversation, they think they've won. Um, I don't think the United States has won because of that, um, and and we need to relearn how to do that. And and I I I am a person that does think it's time for change. I, I think and it's it's not necessarily from this liberal or, or conservative perspective. I think what needs to change is we need a culture that is suited for its time. We were never ready for globalization. We wanted it because it promised great things. And then now we're surrounded by the whole world and all these images and all these ideas and our very notions of what's right and what's wrong are being challenged. And we don't have the skill set to be able to deal with that. That's our homework for flyover season two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of homework, Professor. I can't, I can't wait to see how it goes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's Jose Santos, an anthropologist from Metropolitan State University in St. Paul. He's been helping us wrap up this first season of Flyover from NPR News. You heard the professor's pitch for what to talk about when we come back next fall. But tell me, what big topics of American identity do you want us to take up? Tweet me at CarrieNPR or email us at info at flyoverradio.org. You can find every conversation from this fall on our website, flyoverradio.org. Flyover is produced by Marquita Fornoff, Elizabeth Shockman, Suzanne Pico, and Jeff Jones. Our technical director is Veronica Rodriguez. Cody Nelson is our digital producer. Thanks to Marge Strushko and Jonathan Blakely for working with our amazing public radio station partners this season. Our theme music was composed by Joffrey Wilson. I'm Carrie Miller. Thanks for listening to Flyover from NPR News. 